How's your week been? Um, hot. This is yeah. the first oh, time wow. since moving to Louisiana that I uh, were experiencing, you know, and I've been here before in like August, September when it's like brutal, but we've been pretty good. And this week has been like, you know, you go outside and you're swimming in, I, in humidity. I've never, so I've been to New Orleans multiple times, but my brother and I'm like, every time I go there, I'm like, why am I getting on a plane leaving? This place is amazing. Like it's yes. so stupid not to live here. Yes. And my brother as you know, who lives by you, always says, you've only visited in March and October. Right. Which is true. <laughs> is, it true. Okay, is it true that they're like huge bugs? Um. Yeah, there's huge bugs, but they're not biting you. You okay. know, they're just huge bugs. That that part I don't care about. I mean, okay. I lived in New York City where you see yeah, rats right. when you, you know walk outside and cockroaches everywhere. Um, but I will tell this to anybody. It is very humid here for, you know, late August... September is very, very humid, but there is nothing worse that I've experienced in my life than getting waiting for a New York subway <laughs> August, yep. you know, actually August. How about early July to September um, when it's, you know, 15 minutes late and you have yep. a button shirt on because you and jeans because you're going to the office there. That is the closest to hell that I've ever experienced. I'll take this all day over that. When I first moved to New York in the 90s, there not all the subways had air conditioning even. Yeah, yeah. No. It was yeah, nothing's worse. Unreal. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I tell people. I've got a car here, air conditioning. Yeah. And and it's <laughs> You're moving from air conditioned zone to next air conditioned zone. Yeah. And like you don't move to New Orleans to wear a suit to work. Right. Right. right? You move here to work less and to wear shorts yep. and Hang you on. know less clothing and sweat and go get a frozen margarita. <laughs> so uh, I'll take it. This is No Politics at the Dinner Table. I'm Tony Biancasino. And I'm Amit Prakash. Today we have on Lawrence Douglas. Lawrence is a professor of law and social thought at Amherst College. And we are specifically going to be talking about, about his book, um, will he go? And yeah. um, it's going to be, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting book. It's a terrifying book. So, terrifying. Um, book. Yeah. So let's, spoiler let's alert. It's about Trump. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, we're really excited to have you today. Today we've got Lawrence Douglas. Uh, he's the James J. Grossfeld Professor of Law, Jurisprudence, and Social Thought at Amherst College. He's the author of seven books um, that range from analyses of the Nuremberg Laws to novels to books on humor. Um, so all uh, really, really wide variety. But today he's on with us to discuss his latest book published this year called Will He Go? Uh, Trump and the looming election meltdown in 2020. So thanks so much for coming on. Yes, it's a pleasure to be with you. All right. So uh, let me just start off by thanking you for writing this type of book, um, because a number one, it's short. So people will hopefully read it. Um, it's accessible and it's really thought provoking slash terrifying, you know, like on I read, you know, this is a book that you can read in an afternoon. You just sit down and, you know, read cover to cover um, and you'll get a lot out of it. Even though it's a fast read, it'll keep you thinking all week, uh, which it's done to me. And for <laughs> me, the, the 
the key point seems to be that you're trying to make, and you can correct me, of course, if I'm misreading this, uh, is that the American constitutional system really has no procedural mechanism for like a rogue element like a Donald Trump who who um, might try to shape, unethically shape the outcome of the election or contest its results um, um, in, in not a good spirit, not in a sort of a, with the spirit of the law. Uh, and so basically there's like a, a false assumption that the framers had is that, hey, that the transfer of power is going to be kind of seamless and it's going to be always peaceful and, and and so on. So in the book, you identify a bunch of vulnerabilities that could be exploited um, by a figure like Donald Trump. And in, in this case, we got Donald Trump. Um, so could you just talk a little bit about what you find to be the, the most important p- points of exploitation for someone like him? Well, I think, first of all, the, the, what you just said, uh, Amit, is exactly right. I mean, I think uh, one of the things I was really interested in writing the book was asking the question about, you know, how well is our system of federal and constitutional law designed to deal with, let's say, a president who uh, rejects electoral defeat? And, uh, and I think I was uh, somewhat alarmed by the result of my research, which is that the system is, you know, not particularly well designed at all. Now, I'm not sure if that actually was, you know, a, a fault of the, uh, the, you know, the framers of the Constitution, as much as almost kind of uh, something we need to recognize about any system of, you know, constitutional democracy, that, you know, these systems, you know, you can have all the law you want, uh, but ultimately, the efficacy of the law kind of presupposes that uh, people have absorbed norms, uh, you know, even at the most direct level. Uh, you know, if the only reason that um, that uh, subjects of a state don't engage in murder is because they think they're going to be caught, that's not going to make a legal system work. I mean, people have to kind of have, you know, um, have internalized these norms. And it's particularly dangerous when you have the very you know, the chief executive of a constitutional democracy who has demonstrably failed to or refused to or just simply hasn't internalized, you know, these basic norms. And uh, and the system is really extremely vulnerable uh, to someone like that. Okay. Um, So in the book, you talk about these three possible catastrophes, right? Um, And so if we could just... I learned a lot. I'm, I, I, I know uh, a little bit about the American constitutional system, but not much. And, and, and most people don't really, right. Most people just, they, maybe they vote, you know, like 50% will maybe vote. Um, so could you just talk a little bit about, uh, the electoral college and this question of faithless electors and how that could be, uh, massaged in different directions? Right. So, um, you know, we have this um, anachronistic and, uh, you know, I'd probably say dysfunctional system for uh, electing a president. And remember, again, this is a device that was created uh, at the end of the 18th century. And, uh, you know, this device was uh, kind of, uh, you know, some people have uh, argued, uh, a former professor of mine when I was in um, law school, has, you know, tried to really argue that the Electoral College was born out of a compromise meant to uh, protect the interests of slave states. I think most more generally, we can say that um, the framers of the Constitution 
simply worried that average voters, and by average voters back then, of course, we still mean like white propertied men, uh, that average voters wouldn't have a knowledge of uh, persons of national standing. So they simply wouldn't be able to make an informed decision. And so what they thought uh, we needed was to have this kind of, um, you know, relatively educated, deliberative elite um, who would be able to make informed decisions about who would be the chief executive. And that's why they arrived at this, uh, this device of the Electoral College. Um, by early in the 19th century, the Electoral College had kind of already lost its animating logic and that basically um, electors uh, were no longer chosen because uh, to be uh, persons of independent uh, deliberative judgment. They're basically uh, chosen as um, party hacks in a way or in order to ultimately just uh, cast a vote for whoever won the um, the uh, the election in the popular vote that is in any given state. And so, you know, when Americans go to vote on November 3rd, if you're going to vote directly on November 3rd or if you're voting by mail and ballot, you know, you know, you might think you're voting for Donald Trump or for Joe Biden. You're not voting for them. You're voting for a slate of electors that is these kind of party faithful who are pledged to vote for either Trump or for Biden should they carry the uh, popular vote of your state. Um, yeah. I'm so, so, so just to clarify, so what you're saying is that not only is this thing anachronistic, it's kind of contradictory in terms of its inter its initial rationale, right? That it's, it was supposed to be that these are sort of, you know, open-minded people who will use their own conscience and, um, you know, uh, mental abilities to decide upon what would be the best leader. But now they're just supposed to, you know, be faithful. Right? Yes. That, that's it. Right. And in fact, if they engage in uh, independent deliberation, now that's really kind of considered being a faith, what's termed a faithless elector or a rogue elector. And uh, in fact, the Supreme Court, just for the first time in their history, it's quite remarkable that it took until now for them to uh, decide a case involving this issue. Uh, but just earlier this summer, uh, the Supreme Court um, reached a decision uh, saying that states can constitutionally, they are permitted to uh, bind electors, meaning uh, that electors, they're, they're basically, um, uh, that they are constitutionally permitted to uh, make the electors pledge to vote in whatever way the uh, state popular vote goes. Um, but nonetheless, you can still have electors sort of going rogue or acting faithlessly. I mean, if you go back to the uh, 2016 election, we had uh, seven uh, faithless electors uh, in uh, 2016. Um, and I think we had 10 who tried to be uh, faith. There were three who actually ended up being uh, bound in a sense by the state. Um, and you might think, well, out of 538 votes, you know, seven going rogue or being faithless, that's not necessarily going to change the outcome. But if you go back to, you know, something like the 20, the 2000 election, when George W. Bush defeated Al Gore, I mean, he received 271 uh, electoral college votes out of the 270 needed for a majority. So, you know, seven uh, faithless electors in that case um, uh, would have 
toss the election into the House of Representatives. And so it's still, it's kind of crazy that we continue to have this system that uh, permits, or if it doesn't permit, it actually, it, in a sense, it doesn't prevent people from acting in this faithless way. And if I can just go on for just one more moment yeah, about this, right. you know, you might think, well, okay, at least the Supreme Court decided uh, this summer that states can bind electors. Uh, that's true. And yet... Um, there are 18 states that don't bind electors even to this day. Uh, so electors can still basically kind of do what they want with impunity. And even among the, um, the 32 states that presently do bind electors, um, 17 of them uh, don't contemplate replacing them. So basically they say, you know, you have a pledge. You have to do this. But if they don't do it, if they act uh, faithlessly, there's no mechanism of replacing them uh, already in place. Um, and in fact, you have a couple of states that have completely nutty uh, systems like New Mexico. New Mexico uh, fines a faithless elector. It's kind of a nominal amount. I think it's about $1,000, but they don't replace them. So they, so they just pay a thousand dollars for their vote. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Right. Who, who are the Who are those people? Like, how do you get that position? So it tends to be um, kind of muckety mucks in the pot in the party. So big donors to uh, to the party or to Joe Biden or to um, to Donald Trump or to the Republicans. And yeah, it tends to be kind of you know these party hacks, and it's meant to be somewhat of a ceremonial function, but still. You know, you could imagine a situation in which, you know, some foreign adversary uh, blackmails them. And uh, again, if you think that it's just kind of um, this is what um, uh, pessimistic professors imagine late at night and it's just kind of like a, you know, sort of a very unlikely scenario. Actually, the Supreme Court, that's exactly some of the questions that the Supreme Court were uh, interested in having answered when they decided the case this summer. They want to know, yeah, well, what happens if... Uh, these people are blackmailed or uh, paid off by a foreign adversary. Um, is there really a mechanism for replacement? And in a lot of the states, even if states are now allowed to enforce some kind of pledge, they simply haven't uh, contemplated the issue of what to do if people act uh, faithlessly. Wow. It's, 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 it's a real mess. <laughs> it is. It's, it's shocking. It's ridiculous. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, Tony, did you want to jump in some more? I yeah, got, yeah. I, got, yeah. I mean, I want to, I want to get to it. Let's yeah, talk yeah. about, um, the night after the election, let's go through the scenarios, right? Um, Trump loses popular vote, electoral college doesn't want to leave. And then let's talk about if it's close and can be contested. What are these worst case scenarios? Everyone is at this point, quite frankly, for last year, people are just starting to assume he's not leaving. Right. Exactly. And, you know, I do think that, um, you know, as, as you mentioned, uh, as Ahmed had mentioned um, at the outset, you know, I kind of sketch out these three um, catastrophe scenarios. Obviously, this is not an exhaustive list. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, a lot of other things. This is the top three. <laughs> exactly. No, really, it is in a sense kind of the, uh, the top three. And, um, you know, the one involving the, the faithless electors, it's, it's not the one that keeps me up at night, uh, to be honest. Um, you know, we can go through the others. The one that kind of keeps me up at night 
is the third one. Yeah. This one, this one about blue shift because, right. um, and again, we can kind of drill down into that one a little bit more closely. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I totally agree. That was the one because that gets to it really at the heart of it because the blue shift would be legitimate voting that is then deemed illegitimate from the chattering classes and from Donald Trump. Right. Well, I mean, and, let's walk through. Yeah. Let's, yeah, let's yeah, do it. Yeah. No, no I, I just wanted to sort of uh, underline that that one was one that I also found the most <laughs> yeah. scary. Lawrence, for, for, for the audience that gets a, a little sneak peek at the book, let's, let's do a quick walk through this one. The one that keeps yeah. you up at night. Well, the reason it keeps me up at night is because, you know, when I wrote this book, it was a little bit of a thought experiment about the way things could go wrong and whether we're equipped to troubleshoot these things. Uh, this actually looks like something that is going to happen, I, have, I, I hate to say. Uh, it really looks like a, a train, uh, train wreck in slow motion. We see it. It's going to happen, and we're sort of powerless to stop it. And the reason I say that is so this uh, scenario um, imagines, and it's not particularly hypothetical, imagines that, um, that Donald Trump loses as a result of the late count of mail-in ballots. And, uh, and we know now that an unprecedented number of Americans are going to vote by mail-in ballot. And we also know this was a poll that was uh, just released on August 26th. And the results uh, suggest that 20% of Trump voters uh, intend to vote by mail-in ballot, whereas 60% of Biden uh, voters uh, uh, are likely to vote uh, by mail-in ballot. What that means is you could imagine Trump having a lead on November 3rd. And uh, again, because uh, all the people who are voting in person are going to be Trump supporters. And what we can also imagine happening is that Trump tries to then bootstrap whatever lead he uh, enjoys on November 3rd as indication that he's been reelected and that he goes out tweeting and speaking to his faithful saying, I've won. And that whatever loss he suffers only becomes clear in the days and arguably weeks later, as all these mail-in ballots are counted. And what do we also know? Well, we also know that uh, since early this summer, Trump has been engaging in these uh, preemptive strikes against uh, mail-in ballots. He's been arguing over and over again in tweets and in speeches that mail-in ballots cannot be trusted, that they're going to be corrupted, and that any election that turns on the late count of mail-in ballots is going to be a hoax. And that is, that's a nightmare. He's already saying, you know, test out the system, right? Like vote twice and see, you know, which one they count. And, and it's totally insane. He's so basically then- calling for voter fraud. Yes, so, in 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 in, uh, in North Carolina, he just gave a speech, yeah, and he basically gave the speech saying to do exactly that. It's like, uh, you know, read my lips, go vote twice, show the system to be fraud, show the way in which people who mail and vote by mail and ballot can then mail again. Now, the fact that he's actually, in a sense, soliciting people to engage in a felony. Um, that seems not to have really registered with his uh, supporters. Uh, but that, again, should be, I would think, uh, deeply concerning to uh, people um, 
you know, who believe yep. in constitutional democracy. Okay. Let's assume what's keeping you up at night happens. What is the protocol? Because I don't see Biden um, say, you know, saying he, he's won. I think he's going to contest it and say, no, you've lost. What then? How, how does this unfold? Okay. So uh, I'll let it unfold in a, um, a nightmarish way. That's what we want. And, yes, yeah. exactly. Right. Worst and, case scenario, please. Exactly. And so uh, the nightmarish way, so we already said that on November 3rd, he declares himself reelected based yep. on this, the lead that he enjoys. Which, by the and, way, is a playbook out of uh, George Bush. Um, yes. You know, it, that, that's what they did is they, they, they just said that was their strategy is let's pretend we won and right. just get everybody out there thinking we won. Yes. Even though, again, you know, George W. Bush, I should mention, you know, he was also assisted by uh, some really egregious missteps by the major networks at, in, uh, at the, yep. in the year 2000, yep. where they did declare him, you know, everyone's racing to get the, the news out and they declared him as having won. So he was really assisted by these, um, these um, major networks. Um, but so let's say Trump has this early lead. And uh, in the days that follow, he continues to insist that he's been reelected. Mm -hmm. And what can we imagine happening in these swing states? And we'll focus on Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, because those were the key swing states in 2016. Uh, they were the states that handed him the presidency by a total of 70,000 votes. Again, incredibly small margin of votes when you're talking about you know, 120 million people voting nationally. Um, and, uh, you could imagine, or, or not even imagine again, this is going to happen. Uh, Trump is going to be sending out his legal teams, arguably assisted by the department of justice, by Bill Barr and the department of justice to try to slow the vote in these, uh, swing states and also to contest the counting of these mail-in ballots in the swing states. Because unfortunately, it is the case that uh, mail-in ballots can be disqualified if they're not submitted in a timely fashion. Figuring out if these all these mail-in ballots have been submitted in a timely fashion is going to drag things out. And the more things are dragged out, the more it benefits Trump, because he's going to be able to continue to insist that he's going to be re-elected. That uh, he's going to continue to insist that he has been re-elected. We know that his megaphones and the right-wing media will be repeating and amplifying those claims. And we can also trust uh, Russia to be um, launching some massive disinformation campaign, uh, spreading uh, conspiracies that the count of mail-in ballots uh, has been subject to all these kind of irregularities in these swing states. And uh, that all becomes a recipe for a nightmare. And um, and if I can just continue uh, uh, vexing your sleep uh, just a little <laughs> bit, just a little bit further, um, you might ask yourself, well, how long do the states have to figure this whole thing out? You know, I think a lot of Americans think, well, we go the election day is November third, uh, inauguration day is January twentieth, so we have basically from November third to January twentieth to figure things out. And that is emphatically not the case. States basically, according to federal law, um, 
this coming election season, they have until December 8th to basically figure out who has won their state. Mm -hmm. And you think, well, that's five weeks. That's, you know, that's a lot of time. Uh, They should be able to figure things out in five weeks. But if you just look at the primary season that we've just seen in New York's 12th congressional district, um, it took New York officials six weeks to figure out who won that primary uh, because of all the mail-in ballots and because of all the litigation around the submission of these mail-in ballots. And you're dealing with a far smaller number of mail-in ballots in this 12th congressional district in New York. So what happens if um, the count in our swing states uh, starts pushing up against this December 8th day? Well, it just so happens that our swing states have Republican legislatures. And these Republican legislatures could actually side with Trump and say, you know, this count is dragging on. It's uh, been subject to all sorts of irregularities. We are going to certify Trump as having won our state based on this early lead that he's held. It's also the case that our swing states, just coincidentally, have Democratic governors. And you could imagine our Democratic governors coming along and saying, well, I don't really care how long it took our states to figure out who won. We finally, the outcomes were rather uh, rather narrow, but Biden has carried our state and we're going to certify Biden as the winner. Now you have uh, three states um, which will determine the outcome of the election, um, submitting to Congress, competing understandings of who won their state. And according to uh, law, it becomes uh, the Constitution. It is Congress's responsibility, according to the Constitution, um, to count and to certify the results of uh, the Electoral College. And uh, they will do this on January 6th. It's this uh, it's meant to be a pretty short ceremonial uh, joint session of Congress. But if you have the three states that um, are going to determine the outcome of the election, uh, submitting competing certificates to Congress. And if Congress remains divided as it is now, then we're in a meltdown. You don't have someone elected president of the United States. This is like the Oscars where they're like, hand me the envelope, please. And you get two envelopes. Yes, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) It's the two envelope problem. Yeah. Exactly. And, and what's even worse about it is that uh, who, the people who are opening the envelopes, uh, one group wants, um, you know, Kevin Costner to win and the other one wants Brad Pitt to win. And uh, and they can't agree. I think we all would rather Brad Pitt. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. No, there's no yeah. doubt yeah. about yeah. that. After, after no doubt. Waterworld, I don't know. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. But here, this is a bunch of liberal guys, you know, right. betraying their sensibilities. Right. And we have to realize that we're in a hyper polarized nation. Right. And there are Costner fans out there. I know. Hard, hard as it is to imagine. Yeah, that's true. There is Bull Durham. Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, that on it. Okay, okay, I I, I want to keep going on the nightmare because yeah. <laughs> what I'm trying to get to, and it's not your job to determine this, but you seem to have a little more insight than we do. What 
can we predict then happens? Well, we get two envelopes. Trump's not leaving. Biden's probably one. Correct. Well, I said, okay. well, one way, the one way to get us out of this nightmare is if the Democrats are able to capture the Senate in this fall election. And the reason I say that is because it's not the current Congress that will be receiving these electoral certificates on January 6th. It's the new Congress and the new Congress uh, will be, um, they'll actually be uh, sworn, uh, sworn into office just three days earlier on January 3rd. Got it. And so three days later, uh, they um, open this joint session and they, literally open the envelopes. I mean, it's really quite quaint. The, the state's mail by registered mail, they send in the envelopes uh, with their electoral certificate in them. Wow. And uh, so if it is the case that um, the, the Democrats are able to capture the Senate, then we have a way out of our nightmare because then they'll recognize the certificate of Trump. Uh, they will recognize a Biden certificate. The House will likewise uh, recognize Biden certificate, and we will have dodged a meltdown. But if the Congress remains divided as it is now, with the Senate controlled by Republicans and the House controlled by Democrats, then you don't really have uh, anyone getting elected president. And remember, the Congress would only have about two weeks to sort things out. Um, not around exactly two weeks, just uh, January 6th till January 20th. And I don't see how they could possibly work through um, that uh, problem. They will remain uh, stalemated. It's crazy. So even if it's the, the positive scenario, right, that the, the, the Dems capture the Senate and they certify Biden and so on, it's not like the other side is going to be sated by that, right? Like that there's Trump and his army of supporters are going to be incensed and having heard for two and a half months uh, of how the, the election has been stolen and the Democrats are, you know, colluding to, to steal. And now it's happened. And, and, and of course, a partisan outcome has happened. Um, what happens then? Well, I, th- I think, um, the point that you're making is a very important one, because I could certainly imagine that our nation could see some really ugly civil unrest. I mean, we've already seen civil unrest and we've already seen and remember that Trump is going to remain commander in chief until um, January 20th. And uh, so even if uh, on January 6th, uh, a Democratic controlled Congress recognized Biden as the president elect. Uh, Donald Trump still has a couple of weeks to um, create uh, mischief and chaos. And we've seen the way in which he is, you know, prepared to basically incite violence, uh, to certainly engage in these kind of, you know, dog whistle politics, Mm -hmm. you know, send out these signals to his supporters who will take to the streets. And we've also seen him willing to uh, over um, commit uh, federal force as a way of... um, you know, nominally in the name of creating law and order. But I don't think that's really what his interest is. I think his interest is uh, in creating even greater disorder so he can uh, engage in even a more aggressive commitment to federal force. And 
Um, you know, we saw in Portland his willingness to dispatch uh, federal agents. But even if we go all the way back to Lafayette Square, we saw his willingness to invoke the Insurrection Act of 1807 to bring out federal troops onto the street. So it's certainly possible that we could see some really ugly times. But that said, Ahmed, I do think that if Congress is controlled by Democrats and they recognize Biden as having uh, won these uh, contested states, then at least we probably will have dodged the deeper constitutional crisis. We'll probably still be in for a period of civil unrest, but I do think we will have dodged the, the deeper constitutional crisis. Okay. And then if he won't leave, if we've dodged the worst case scenario and he still won't leave, whose job is it? Is it is that Supreme Court? Whose job is it to say, get him out? Okay, arrest so, him. So let, let let's assume that uh, Congress remains divided, yes. and they have this two weeks to kind of figure out who won these key swing states. Well, um, I think Tony, as you're suggesting, well, maybe at this point the Supreme Court would step in, because we might remember that in the year 2000, uh, the Supreme Court was the institution that stepped in and stop the recount in uh, Florida. And, um, you know, as you might remember, when they stopped the recount in Florida, this was with um, George W. Bush clinging to a 537 vote victory. I mean, that again, that's, that's kind of crazy. Um, but um, the thing to bear in mind now is most constitutional experts would say that once an electoral dispute reaches Congress, at that point, the Supreme Court has no role to play whatsoever. Got it. So in the case of the year 2000, the Supreme Court intervened before things got to Congress. It was just when the recount in, uh, in uh, Florida was dragging out until the beginning of December, the early weeks of December, and that's when the Supreme Court stepped in. But once an electoral dispute gets to uh, Congress, the Supreme Court has no role to play. And if uh, Congress can't uh, figure things out uh, and it remains divided with these uh, competing electoral certificates, then really what would happen is um, ultimately by the Presidential Succession Act of 1947, uh, Nancy Pelosi on uh, January 20th uh, would be sworn in as uh, president. Wow. <laughs> the plot thickens. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, my yeah. God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The plot thickens. And um, and I think, you know, in that... I'm sure that would cause no controversy. <laughs> right, exactly. Precisely no controversy. Well, one thing but... we know would happen is she would have the military arrest everybody in there. <laughs> exactly. uh, this is terrible. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, I think a lot of it at that point, let's say we get to a scenario where um, Mary Pelosi is sworn in. Well, let's like maybe just take one step uh, back. And uh, so some of your listeners might be thinking, well, OK, this is a bunch of professors. They've got nothing better to do than to kind of. Uh, think out these uh, these twilight zone scenarios. And, you know, we should bear in mind that almost the exact same thing happened in 1876 in the United States. Um, and it's almost kind of uncanny how 
much the the way things are lining up in 2020 resemble what happened in 1876 in this Hayes-Tilden election. Uh, in that election, you had three separate states. You had Louisiana, South Carolina, and Florida um, having divided government. And as a result of the divided government between Democrats and Republicans, they submitted competing electoral certificates to Congress with the election in the balance. You had a Congress that was divided in precisely the same ways, Democratic-controlled House, Republican-controlled Senate, unable to decide who carried these swing states. And it wasn't until two days before the inauguration that uh, the crisis was solved. And I should also mention that the solution was an absolute disaster to for black citizens of the United States. Because what the solution was is that the Democrat Samuel Tilden ultimately did concede, but in return for the Republican promise to remove federal troops from the South, basically ending uh, Southern Reconstruction. And that paved the way to the creation of Jim Crow, uh, Jim Crow laws and basically a system of racial apartheid um, in you know southern states. And um, but even before that um, crisis was solved, two days before inauguration, the then president Ulysses S. Grant he was so concerned that both of them were going to declare themselves the rightful presidents of the United States and stage their own inaugural events that he did consider uh, declaring martial law. And he was really concerned about uh, a civil war breaking out again. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah, this is a good we'll situation. We'll put some lullaby music on yeah. this. Yeah, right yeah. Now, right? exactly. Right. Right. Get, out, get out the bath. Lullaby. Well, it's actually, you know, it's funny. I was telling a few people you were coming on and giving them the brief um, background and they're like maybe you guys shouldn't talk about this and i go that's the problem <laughs> is that you don't want to be talking about this in november this is what we have to start thinking about this now i mean it, it now's the time to talk about it yes and uh and i think it is also for, you know there are a couple of people i gave some interviews uh, earlier in the summer and people said well did you ever worry that you were actually uh presenting a blueprint right. Right. Uh, to the <laughs> Trump people and you know i i would like to flatter myself to thinking that um that their lawyers haven't already thought all this thing, all this stuff through, and we very clearly see uh, that this is Trump's, you know, strategy. We very clearly see that uh, you know he issued a um, uh, a tweet on the same day. I think this was July thirtieth. This was the day that he uh, tweeted, uh, "Maybe we should delay the election," and everyone went crazy about that tweet because you know the president can't delay the election. What an abhorrent thing for him to even suggest. That same day. He issued another tweet that got virtually no attention that I thought was much more troubling. And it said, we need to know the results on November 3rd, not days, week, months, or years later. And the reason that was so concerning is because it just tells us what his strategy is. The strategy is discredit the mail-in ballots that are going to break for Biden and let's go with whatever lead I have on November 3rd. Yep. I got to say in the book, um, one thing that I got a kick out of is that you, did you use like a Donald Trump tweet generator or is that just you? 
<laughs> you riffing all, all these imaginary tweets of Donald Trump. You got his voice down pretty well. Yeah, thanks. I would say that um, since you mentioned that I do have uh, some of background writing fiction, that, you know, the idea of kind of mimicking voices is, you know, something that I think fiction writers sometimes pride themselves on. So, uh, yes, I, I did enjoy getting to write some of these um, these imaginary tweets. And, um, you know, not to pat myself on the back, but he issued a tweet recently about mail-in ballots, which almost was identical <laughs> to something that I wrote in the book. Well, it's pretty so, clear uh, that you're, yeah. you're, you're just, they're already doing what your warning could happen. I mean, it, it seems just listening to you talk now and, and Ahmed and I discussing the book before, you know, we had you on, it, it seems like this is kind of what they're going for is this worst case scenario where it's chaos. It's, um, it's already starting to declare that it's fraudulent. I mean, you know, anything you could say. Um, and that's pretty scary, but I think the most important thing I've learned from talking to you today is, and, and Ahmed and I are pushed this all the time is your, your vote for Congress. People don't realize how important, the the uh, representatives of your states and your counties, like the lower level um, uh, candidates, my God, they're more important than ever this time around to avoid worst case scenario. We need to really flip the Congress and Senate. Absolutely. These down ballot races are absolutely crucial. And, you know, I suppose the other way to really avoid this uh, this nightmare this fall is really to hand Trump a very decisive victory. And obviously that means um, not just beating him in the national popular vote. In fact, that in a sense is almost irrelevant. It's really beating him decisively in the electoral college and to beat him decisively in the swing states. And also to have that decisive um, uh, uh, victory over Trump evident pretty quickly. If not, you know, on November 3rd itself, then as the mail-in ballots start to get counted, that we very clearly see a trend early on. So maybe yeah. three or four days later, we already see, well, his lead has already evaporated and he's already trailing. And as more of the mail-in ballots get counted, uh, counted, that's just kind of icing on the cake, confirming that he's really suffered a decisive loss. The thing that becomes really concerning is if his lead in the swing states uh, holds for a number of weeks and the count in the swing states gets held up in litigation. Yeah. yeah. And then there's the other scenario no one's talking about is Trump just wins by a landslide and then we all realize we're living in a different America. Well, then we all kind of look into our... My, my, my wife has Hungarian citizenship. So, uh, you know, Hungary is the one country that's even more illiberal. Yeah. Oh, more authoritarian than the United States, yeah, yeah. but this is still a member of the EU. So I was texting with my buddy the other day in China and he goes, You should move to China. And I go, It's starting to look good. It's starting to look like a good plan. Right. right. All right. So we've got this one bit that we do usually at the end of the show called Party Favors, um, where we give advice to any politicians that might be listening um, about what you know, the Democrats should do to win. And we reluctantly do it for the Republicans. But today we'd like to hand that over to you. And you don't for, need to do the Republicans. Don't do the Republicans. <laughs> Your right. book is actually, yes. you know, if they, if they operationalize some of that, they're, they, they, and they're, as we said, they're already doing it. Uh, but what would you say to the Democrats, you know, politically, what do they need to do to win? Well, I think what's really critical is if you're voting by mail and ballot, do it early. 
Uh, so you avoid this kind of glut of mail-in ballots that's going to overtax the U.S. Postal Service. Uh, because we've also seen Trump, you know, engaging in this attack on the U.S. Postal Service. So don't wait to the last second, because that just plays into Trump's hands. And the other thing is, um, you know, you can also try to organize uh, groups of poll watchers even. Because, you know, if people are voting in person, you really want to avoid a situation. You want to make sure that uh, Trump isn't dispatching ICE agents to, let's say, um, uh, neighborhoods uh, in which people have uh, heavily populated with people of Latinx heritage in an effort to try to uh, intimidate voters. So um, and the other thing is, and this goes more to the kind of the progressive wing out there. If you think uh, Biden hard to get enthusiastic about, um, you know, this is, I think, a code red moment in the life of our constitutional democracy. So even if Biden wasn't your first choice, get out there and make sure that we don't have um, four more years of this menace to our constitutional democracy. And if you had some advice for the actual DNC and the Biden campaign, He's got a, he's got six less than sixty days left to get some sort of a message out there. How, what advice would you give them? Well, one thing I do think is I do think the DNC really should be organizing people to to uh, monitoring polling places. Okay. Uh, because I really do think that Trump is going to have uh, potentially you know thugs out on the street, really trying to just intimidate people from voting and also engaging in kind of disinformation. So, and the other thing is, you know, and this is something that the DNC doesn't need to be reminded of because I know for a fact they're already doing this, but, you know, they have get those legal teams ready because there's going to be a lot of litigation uh, brought against these mail-in ballots and be ready uh, early and often to uh, push back against the attempt to, um, to steal the election from, uh, from Joe Biden. Well, there you go. Yeah. This was, in a really sick way, fun. Okay, well, <laughs> yeah. I, know, I, like, I, like, I like horror stories. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right, um, we all have a catastrophic imagination, so we're able to, uh, and unfortunately, as I said, you know, it really does look like a train wreck in slow motion. Yeah. You know, we see it happening, and it probably, it's, it's something like this is going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. One thing, if I, I wanted to end with, there's something you say at the end of the book where there's like this claim that, Liberals often, or even progressives and uh, more radicals, will say that Trump is symptom and cause. Um, and you, you sort of push back against that a little bit and say that he's kind of unique. And you've got this great analogy with the, the, the brush fires in California. You've got like a lot of little fires, but then you need the big gust of wind to create the roaring inferno to destroy everything. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Like, what's what do you see as unique about this guy? Yes, I do think that he is the wind that blows hard and hot. And he really does. I mean, he has an incredible amount of energy. Whatever else we can say about Donald Trump is he has an astonishing amount of energy. And he is amazing at uh, creating chaos. And, uh, you know, to say that he is uh, simply a symptom of different, of, you know, problems within the American political system, true to a degree. But my God, this guy has been a truly toxic force in, uh, you know, spreading this poison all over the place. And, uh, and it's essential for us to, to try to break that spread. 
or you know, to mix metaphors to get the waters out to uh, to tame those wildfires that are now kind of you know threatened to be a real a real conflagration. Right. Well, Lawrence, thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, thanks for the book. It's it's a great read. Everybody should read it. Um, and yeah, we let's. I, we hope to have you back on maybe yeah. post November third sometime. Yeah. Maybe yeah. post December eighth. You right. know, I think right. that's the, that's the date, right? Yes. Um. So so um. Good luck with the semester. Yes. Um, Likewise. Yeah. And yeah, we're we're really psyched to have you. Thank well, you. it was a real pleasure having you. It was. Uh, it was a real pleasure being on your show, and I look forward to talking to you again. All right. Thank you, Lawrence. Take care. Okay. Take care. That was nuts. That, that was, was enlightening. Yeah. As I said, the book is enlightening and terrifying. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, you know, he says in the book that, you know, a lot of these things are not probable, but they're also not improbable. Right. Um, and that that blue shift thing, man, that is that's, I, I think he's right. That's going to happen. And then who knows what's going to happen after that. But we got to well, know. Got to know. Well, we're we're close to finding out. Yeah the That's outcome right. of this so uh well you know i i saw yesterday trump is down eight points in pennsylvania so let's just keep hoping it keeps on going those down polls are at least somewhat accurate this time around and um let's hope Corey's right michigan's going to go blue and then yeah. we just gotta get a little baby wisconsin to flip <laughs> little baby wisconsin that's right come on wisconsin we we, we buy your cheese that's right we I'm do. not buying their cheese anymore. If they're, Absolutely I'll still buy not. it. We'll still buy it. Uh, well, actually, you're in Vermont. You're good. I'm in Vermont. Yeah, yeah I don't. Good. But but I will buy the cheese. Yes, we'll buy yeah. stupid <laughs> cheese. Oh my god! God help us all. Um. All right, man. Well, we will yeah. see you next week. That's right. No politics at the dinner table is produced by Amit Prakash. Um, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, um, our website, and buy some T-shirts. Um, We've got just a few left now, but you need to do it. Um, All right, guys. See you next week. See you next week.